Hey everyone, this is Matt, producer of the Hayek Program Podcast. If you've ever wondered to yourself, gosh, when is the Hayek Program Podcast going to have some merchandise available? Well, now we do. If you go to www.mercatusmerch.com, you'll find Mercatus's new podcast merchandise store, where the Hayek Program Podcast has a tote bag, a mug, and a water bottle available for purchase. It's just in time for the holidays too, so you can go grab one for yourself, a friend, or a family member. And for our listeners, if you use the promo code Hayek at checkout, you'll get 10% off your purchase. Once again, that's www.mercatusmerch.com and use the promo code Hayek to save 10% at checkout. And as always, we'd love to have you share the latest episode with those in your orbit. Word of mouth is the primary way we grow the podcast, and we are always eager to keep the conversation going with other lifelong learners. Thank you so much for being a great audience. And with that, let's get to the episode. You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. So Stefan, welcome. Well, thanks for getting me back to campus. It feels like a home which I haven't seen for a while. Thank you. That's great. Today we want to talk about order liberalism together, and it's part of a mini-series on the subject that I hope to do. And order liberalism, for people who are unfamiliar with the term, is uh, sometimes referred to as one of the three neoliberal schools, uh, the other ones being the Austrian School of Economics, which on the Hayek podcast you will have heard loads about. The other is the Chicago School of Economics, associated with Milton Friedman, Aaron Director, Gary Becker, and others. And then there's the more elusive German order liberal school, which I think in recent scholarship is gaining a lot of uh, renewed fame, but for a long time was far less, far more obscure than the other one. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about what order liberalism is to you and why people should know about it. Well, you know, it's a, it's a curious thing, I have to say. It sounds very German, right? So there obviously something about a combination about order and liberty. But as we'll see probably in the course of the conversation, it was not as German, at least not in the time. So it came up in the 30s and 40s as an intellectual program in what we would call today law and economics. It, those were the darkest times for liberty, and uh, it was questionable whether liberty has a future in the 20th century. So the whole neoliberal movement, which uh, was there at the time, those few people who still subscribe to liberty, had those basically same questions. And the German people within that group um, were the older liberals, right? So some of them were in Freiburg uh, in southwestern Germany. Some others emigrated. And all of them were worrying and trying to find scientific but also ethical questions to the big, big problem of what the preconditions of liberty are. And so that's basically what it means. So what prerequisites and preconditions does liberty have so that a, a liberal order can thrive? So that 1933 in Germany or 1917 in Russia does not repeat itself. 
That's the basic question. So what are the pillars of that order and how do we secure them from collapsing yet again? And did they come up with a specific answer to that to that problem that is different from what we know about from the other schools? So I would really say that it was it was a parallel movement both in Chicago and in London and in Vienna and in Geneva and in Freiburg. So um, I think this question is extremely old, right? So um, um, their answer was perhaps more more explicit than some than the other ones have formulated it, and uh, but I wouldn't say it was so fundamentally different, right? I mean. You can imagine it, um, and th- this is probably the most that 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 part. I think they got uh, quite well. They basically would say that the dynamic processes of the economy uh, or other parts of society need framework uh, or multiple frameworks, right? So what they were struggling with, and what they got good answers to, is that you really need a combination between the dynamics, which which any Austrian would love, with some statics which is the framework around that um, dynamic processes. So this distinction between the very dynamic process and the less dynamic or even static rules uh, is one of the things. Something else would be that even if you imagine that as a stadium and you have those rules, the foundations below the stadium also matter, right? So what are the sociological and moral preconditions? So I think in in terms of that structured thinking of um, frameworks and foundations, I think they did a similar job than the, uh, like the other ones, but in a certain sense, perhaps pressed by the urgency at that time in Germany, it was, I think the, 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 the images which come out of it were more explicit. And that's perhaps why it also has shaped the post-war political debates more than those other schools. But again, in a certain sense, all those groups move along similar lines. Uh, there are differences in emphasis, differences in the rhetoric they use, differences in the metaphors. And I think the Ordo Liberals got some of the metaphors more succinctly and more uh, more well put than the other ones. What would be one of the key metaphors that you stands out as a, as a, as a sort of characteristic for the Ordo Liberal way of thinking? I would come back to the so this is my metaphor yeah. um, of how I imagine their uh, their world again. If you imagine uh, a stadium, so it's of, of course we long we have long had the metaphor of the game, but their metaphor is we have the stadium, we play a game. Of course, on the playing field we need some rules. That's not new that we've had for many centuries. But the emphasis that the stadium. So the nice rules on the stadium wouldn't help you um, if the stadium collapses, right? So the best rules of the game wouldn't work and wouldn't have any value if the stadium collapses because the pillars on which the stadium is built, so basically the statics of the stadium um, are not fixed. I think that I find a powerful way to capture their uh, thoughts. So it's not only about the formal rules of the game. It really is about those informal, cultural um sociological, moral foundations which are below the stadium and um, which partly comes from the state, partly come from civil society, but without them, the best rules, the best legal rules would not do any any work. Another picture would be the picture of interdependence, so um, saying that the economy is part of society is not just a simple statement, but instead, if you think of it as an order, 
which is embedded in those other societal orders. I think that also gives you an interesting, um, an interesting picture, and it makes you think, especially in shaky times like '30s or like today. And I think that is also a way to explain this. What you mentioned in the beginning, that new interest in photoliberalism, right? So we live in fragile, instable times like the '30s, and so all of a sudden, that notion that the economy can harm those other orders of society like the state or the state can harm the economy. So that picture of interdependence has become topical yet again. So those two would be the ones I would emphasize. The stadium with the formal and informal rules and then the embeddedness of that stadium in the larger picture of society. And so before we move to right, those underlying pillars, the order liberals are also um, famous for their uh, critique or perhaps better critical analysis of economic power. Mm-hmm. As a as a genuine danger to a free society, could you could you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, biographically, as we <clears throat> just briefly discussed, they were living in this time where power, the concentration of power, had had already reached its absolute all time high um, in human history. So it's quite obviously that you should be worried of power in any sense, right? It said that power could stem from the state. Quite obviously, if you think of Germany of the thirties and forties. But they were also worried about private power, um, about which many other liberals don't really care too much about, right? So many people would say, well, if a market is open, we shouldn't care about market power. Um, And they did. And I think it's important that they did because it's quite obvious that those varieties of power stemming from the state, stemming from, from some market participants, stemming from some powerful groups in society, those power types can actually interact and can reinforce each other. Right, So if we have market power um, by some powerful digital giant today, it doesn't mean that it, that power remains limited to the market, even though it might be temporary, even though that market can be contestable, even though that power can disappear in five years. Within those five years, that power can be used by that player to capture the state, to capture crucial institutions of democracy. And so they were really worried about this, I would call it interdependence of powers, right? So market power matters on the market, but especially because it can encroach within that picture of interdependent orders on other orders. It can capture science, it can capture uh, the state. And uh, that's why we should also care not just about coercion coming from the state, but also those more soft, those softer, those um, less visible and yet equally dangerous types of power which stem from other players. And so to to, to step back a little bit, right? there's um, <clears throat> also in the Hayek program a lot of interest for the American Public Choice School mm-hmm. right? around Buchanan and Tulloch. But there's also one of their students who uh, recently retired here, Dick, Dick Wagner, mm-hmm. who talks about an entanglement between uh, markets and society. So is it, do we go to the order liberals for an early version of a kind of public choice critique that it's that the big danger of a, of a, a laissez-faire system is rent-seeking or do we go to them for an early version of entanglement between market and, and state? Well, I would really say both and uh, Dick is certainly somebody who is uh, one of the few people in the US over the, over the past decades who Way before ordoliberalism became interesting in recent in the recent decade, has been a student um, of those. So indeed, rent seeking was something which the ordoliberals already theorized during the Weimar Republic. So the state 
expanded, it intervened. And by that, it became ever more attractive for ever more pressure groups to be captured. So, And, and it's, it's very explicit in a paper of Oikim of 1932, <clears throat> which has been recently translated. So um, that is certainly the one part. And then indeed, the entanglement is, I would say, in, in, in Dick's uh, theory, a very, uh, a much more, probably a much, but much better digestible rhetoric for that interdependence, right? So interdependence sounds like scientistic in a way, whereas it really means that all those other orders are entangled. And if we think of power <clears throat> as the energy between those orders, which can go back and forth, uh, it is these entangled orders and the power which can jump from the one to the other, uh, which makes power dangerous, but which makes such a, an analysis of society so important. So I think both rent-seeking and entanglement uh, as theorized by Dick, are way, are ordoliberal concepts, I think, to which he has found a better language than we would find in the original documents. But it's that very same lineage of thought. So um, we already talked a little bit about the origins, but we haven't talked about the ordoliberals themselves yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so we haven't talked about any individuals. Um, and to me, um, I would say that there's two who stand out. Um, so let me start with the first one, Walter Eucken, who is um, perhaps the most economistic among them. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he develops um, an analysis of, of market types that is, becomes quite fundamental in how order liberals then start to think about what a free society should be. Could you, could you tell us a little bit more about Walter Eucken and, and what his position is within the order liberal school? Yeah, so Oiken is a really, really interesting figure, and there is a biography coming out in a month, which will first come out in German, but, but it will soon be translated also into English. And it's a fantastic book about the person only, right? So not about the theory, but really about that human being who really had a an interesting and uh, an interesting life with numerous tensions. So he's born 1891 uh, into the family of a Nobel Prize winner in literature. His father was a Philosopher who was also a very a very good writer, and so Rudolf Eucken, right? Rudolf Eucken, um, who got a Nobel Prize in literature for his so-called Lebensphilosophie. So he um, studied that strange German combination of Staatswissenschaften, which today would translate probably best as PPE. So uh, it was about economics, but embedded in law, embedded in political science, sociology, and certainly with lots and lots of philosophy, also because of his father. He, just as that whole generation, had to fight the Great War, um, then comes back from the war as a German nationalist. But then in the course of the 20s, he becomes a liberal because he realizes that um, um, the economic order of of the Weimar Republic um, in its highly interventionist um, variety as it exists increasingly becomes a threat uh, to to democracy. And when the depression hits in, that becomes quite obvious. He um, has his origins in the German historical school, which is important. So all of those economists are raised in the historical school tradition, not quite theoretical. Um, and yet he had an, an interesting teacher who was also interested in theory. Um, but the interesting part begins in the 30s when... 
uh, the Freiburg School emerges. So the Freiburg School is this combination of Eucken on the one hand, who is the economist, and then two other lawyers, uh, Hans Böhm and Hans Kosman dort So I think we can clearly say that it's a very early version of law and economics, which they practice. And they try to, yeah, they try to analyze how a liberal order after, after the Nazis can actually look like, both in terms of the economics, that's Eucken's job, and in terms of the legal frameworks, that's the job of the lawyers. But it's a really a cohesive school. I'm usually quite unwilling to use the notion of the school, but it was a school it produced also many, many students who met it after the war. So when the war ends, 1945, Eucken, recon Eucken reconnects to Hayek, and to um, there is an extensive correspondence between 1945 45 and 1950. He's very f foundational uh, in the early years of the Montpellerin Society, and you and I were just in Oslo for the anniversary meeting, so um, he was the only German to attend the founding meeting. <clears throat> and then, tragically, he he dies in London in 1950, where Lionel Robinson Hayek had invited him to give a lecture a series at the LSE, but then he dies in the course of the lecture series. So. Um, what, should, what I should add, and this is important, is that in the late 30s and early 40s, he and some other economists and social scientists and philosophers in Freiburg also formed resistance circles. So they understood that talking about moral foundations and all of that, which we've discussed, is not enough. You also have to take a moral position against the regime. And so they were organizing in various groups uh, in Freiburg and beyond. And that after 1944, after the assassination attempt against Hitler, really became a very dangerous thing, an existential thing. So some of his colleagues uh, also get death, uh, got death sentences and all of that. So <clears throat> somebody who started out as a kid of a philosopher had to learn economics of his own because his teachers hadn't really taught him the modern economics as and understood and, in the 20s. And, and about his economics, right? Because he leaves behind or uh, wrote mm -hmm. two important volumes, one... The, the principles mm -hmm. of economics and the other one on the principles of economic policy. What, what, what is distinct about them? Because they, they, in some sense, are the heart of what we could call order liberal economic theory. In a way. So the first book, The Foundations of uh, Economics, is really about how do we... So he was a close friend of Edmund Husserl and was, as anybody at the time, inspired by Max Weber. So the attempt is really what are forms of markets, of monetary systems, um, and of the order itself, which we can distill so that we can theorize the economy, right? So it's really an attempt to, and that's why it's called Foundations of Economics. He, he has this hope that by overcoming the legacy of the historical school, as he understands it, um, he can theorize the market um, and money um, and different types of competition and the market order embedded in society so that he has a theoretical apparatus. The second book, which I found the more interesting one, is uh, what do we do with it, right? So how do we shape economic orders? Uh, how, do we, um, how do we erect an economic constitution? Um, how does that correspond to democracy? So um, unfortunately, it has never been translated into English. Um, only passages of it has. Um, but it's uh, it's a very very powerful book, um, and it was it was published posthumously. So we 
in a current project of editing his works, we probably will come out with a new edition of it, but it's really, in a certain sense, also a normative book. So how do we set up an economy which is efficient, but also a humane system, right? So what is important for the order liberals is that efficiency is a necessary, but not a sufficient condition for a good order. They say, even if the market economy is better than the centrally planned economy, for the reasons we know from the socialist calculation debates, that would not be enough for us to endorse that economy. We should also prove that it is a system which ensures a life in liberty and justice. Then and only then, if we take the two together, so efficiency and ensuring a humane life, then and only then we can endorse such an order. And that's the topic of the second book. Yeah, which brings us back to right these pillars that, that you talked about before, these sort of um, cultural and moral foundations. And at least in my mind, I always associate them most with Alexander Rusto and, and Wilhelm Röpke, sometimes called the sociological uh, order liberals. Um, could you tell us what, what they contributed or um, what they have argued about these moral foundations? Yeah, so I, I do believe that we can think, I mean, whether they had it or not is perhaps not so important, but we can think of that group as having an implicit division of labor. So Eucken would be the economic theorist or a theorist of economic policy as discussed. Böhm and Kosmondorf would be the legal scholars. And as you mentioned, uh, Röpke and Rousseau are way better, I would say, at um, theorizing those pillars below the stadium, right? So what, what can be done um, so that the stadium does not collapse? So um, I, th I, th I think the metaphor which captures that quite elegantly is that the state, but also the players of civil society, have that role to constantly check the pillars and see if somebody of those pillars has been sort of used up and, um, and fix it, right? So it's like an, an engineer who is in charge of the statics of the stadium. Um, and that's important. They always struggle with the notion of the state and with the role of the state, because obviously, if you think of the state at the time, it's not something which you would like to entrust too much. But what specifically Rüsto was thinking about is the question of what is the, he calls it the vital situation. So what is, what is a good, a good environment for a human being to flourish, right? So what are the prerequisites in terms of education? in terms of ethics, in terms of also practical things like uh, your connection to nature, um, your attitude to, uh, to culture and all of that, so that a human being becomes a liberal citizen, because then and only then can you hope up to 1945 to build a society which is not just based on some abstract principles and abstract rules, but which bottom up has the citizens which are needed for those pillars of the stadium to be to be stable. Does that also include sort of the, the meaning of work, as we would call it today? The meaning of work, certainly. So uh, the meaning of, yeah, absolutely. So um, the meaning of work, um, the meaning of, so basically the meaning we impute on institutions like the family the way you spend your leisure, um, your spare time, the way you, <clears throat> again, the way you need, um, right? So they have this notion of 
proletarians, which is different from the materialist notion of the proletarian, right? So the proletarian, in their view, uh, and that's a danger, is somebody who who doesn't have that environment to thrive, right? So he is alienated from the work. He, he might have, but in material terms, he might have a good life, right? But he wouldn't attribute meaning to to his work, um, to to family, to society. Um, in a strange way, I think in the Greek, in the ancient Greek uh, sense, we can call that person an idiot, right? So somebody who is incapable to communicate, to have a sense of the commonwealth. And for that to be prevented, the state and civil society have to come up with um, with this environment which makes, which it produces a citizen, right? So the big concern, obviously, after the war was having millions of Nazis and um millions of people who have no sympathy whatever for the new order, right? So how do you um, make a sustainable citizen who who in the long term subscribes to that order? So that is what 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 is what is important to them. I think in terms of ethics there they can be described as virtue ethicists. So it really is also quite in line with uh, Didier McCloskey's emphasis on the bourgeois um, virtues so um yeah that's what they're struggling with right so so, so, so it's interesting in, in in that sense right because right if you, if you say alienation people might instantly think of marx but i think there's also an interesting line in liberal political economy going back to adam smith yep. where there's also a critique of specialization right, yeah, the, the, of specialization and of jobs yep. be, are essentially being being meaningless and not fostering yep. any sort of uh, sense of self-worth or, or, or dignity. And and it, it's interesting to, to see that recurring. And of course, the context is quite different, right? Because Germany has just gone through 40 years of rapid industrialization. So in some sense, right, around 1900 might be the, the Dickens era of, mm-hmm. of, of, of Germany, right? It's, it's, the, uh, it's the situation in which perhaps there was not material impoverishment, as you, as you emphasize, but in which, right, um, traditional ways of of living and of being and of earning one's keep changes drastically during that period. And that gives rise to them to mass industry and mass politics and an individual who has lost most of its individuality. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I think it's, there is a nice way to contrast it to Hayek, right? So I would say Hayek was primarily, if, if you think of the two categories, we have abstract society, right? The extended order, we have the small community. Hayek would always be worried that uh, the logic of the small community in which we have lived for so long can encroach on society. And I think uh, Röpke and Rousseau have that opposite uh, fear, right? So living in the context as you described it, um, living in something which is extremely new, uh, which is, they would call it mass society, but mass is not a normative term. It just means that you have these millions of people who have been disembedded from um, their long-standing communities. And so they're afraid that this mass society, the extended order, as Hayek would call it, can crush the the community, right? And um, they have this, well, you can call it utopian, but uh, perhaps digitalization is getting us there, uh, idea that we need to really foster the community. We need people, along with living in a mass society, to have healthy um 
communities which give them the bonds which they need so that they can be citizens also of the great of the extended order of the uh, of society so it's really the opposite worry is it society encroaching on the community as they would be worried or is it like in hayek where the um where the community with with its long long-standing logic in our minds encroaches on society so in that sense they really had this I mean a similar line of thought but the very opposite worry as the as the prime worry of modernity so that might lead one in different political directions almost right so we haven't talked about Willem Rupke much yet but one might say that he initially starts out with a kind of inter interdependence and so he puts on the table right the importance of citizenship and the importance of sort of human flourishing in combination with an economy, but obviously it might also lead into more communitarian directions where the economy essentially is functional to the extent that it provides communitarian bonds and is dysfunctional to the extent that it destroys them. Or is there not that tendency in order liberalism or at least in Rupke? I think the tension exists in Rupke. So, um, and, um, the whole project of the social market economy, of which we perhaps should also talk because it's like the sort of political phrase which um, made order liberalism popular after the war, has often been summarized as economy for the human being, right? So the economy is indeed instrumental um, to have a flourishing life of the individual, but also to have those healthy communities which help the individual. So in that sense, um, I do believe, and people have also used the term, uh, that we can call Röpke and Rousteau proto-communitarians. I think that is uh, that is uh, certainly a, a legitimate way to um, to say that. And again, globalization and digitalization, in a certain sense, have um, reinforced those tensions, right? So we can say that globalization is high on steroids, right? So we have the extended order, which makes our life uh, extremely abstract. Uh, whereas digitalization at least has given us back some of the communities. And so the question is, is the tension even worse than they thought it would be? And that possibility of the one encroaching on the other, or is perhaps the digital community which we have in our pocket reconcile us with the abstractness and the, the cold and the, uh, the, the, yeah, well, the, um, yeah, with the abstractness of the of the global extended order, right? I mean, positively speaking, it could be that the comeback of the community through digital technology sort of makes it easier for us to to live in the in that very abstract uh, globalized extended order. Could be. I mean, it's also another way of making the inter interdependence point, right? Is that you you get economic development which is accompanied by technological innovation, but that technological innovation, of course, does not remain narrowly economic, right? right? It will have, right? Political actors will use it to their advantage. The legal, uh, the legal order has to be constantly has to update, Right, it might even upset property rights yep. in, the, in the way that the digital economy has done. And that's why I find that this picture of, so if you imagine all those bubbles of the orders, like the economic order, the legal order, if you imagine them as those boxes which have those arrows between them and those arrows are transmission transmission channels uh, over which you can 
imagine good or bad energy to be flowing back and forth. And then a shock hits in like digitalization or some new form of globalization or now deglobalization. Then you can basically imagine how that impulse, either coming from one order or coming exogenously from outside, propagates through that system of interdependent boxes. Um, so another box would be the order of religion. So a religious society might be, and Rotke uh, certainly would think like that, more resilient to such shocks, right? So it can absorb some of those of that better energy which comes from outside and help the other orders to, well, not implode, right? So uh, make the citizen as living in those other orders more resilient to to the shock. So I think the picture is very powerful and. Um, it's it's helpful, especially when those orders, like all of them on the national and supranational and international level, are so um, shaky as they are today, because you have those channels and interfaces between them, and they really matter. In stable times, they don't matter. You can theorize the economy in stable times as an economy, and it's perfectly fine. But once it gets so much from the outside, and when it, it can send out so much to the outside, like inflation right now, being a genuine threat to democracy, you really need to think about those interfaces between the boxes, which is the interdependence picture, or as Dick Wagner would say, the entanglement. Yeah, yeah, that's. I, I mean, I think we we should move on. But it, it's it's such an important observation, right? That inflation is another one of those phenomena, inflation yeah. and employment, right? That have enormous social effects, so that are also going to affect the social fabric, right? And famously in Germany. It essentially wiped out a middle class, or at least the savings of a middle class. They might not perhaps have lost all their ways of, of living, but they yeah. lost lot, lots of their economic status and 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 in, in some sense their resilience by losing their, their wealth. I want to move to your own work uh, now a little bit, which I will describe here uh, unceremoniously as de-Germanizing the ordo-liberalism. I like that. Um, so... Um, let us start with the 1930s, because uh, in some of your papers you have explored links between Chicago, or what you call Old Chicago, and the other liberals. What is that about? Did they communicate? Did they influence each other? And, 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 and what kind of similarities should we be thinking about between Chicago and, and Freiburg? So let's briefly explain what Old Chicago means, right? So Old Chicago is something which we can... Um, we can find in the 30s and 40s, so roughly speaking at the same time which we were now discussing about Freiburg and all those other old liberals like Röpke and Rüstel. Um, old Chicago is something which, as a term, I owe to James Buchanan, whom I met here at GMU uh, in 2008 for the first time, and he was insistent that we should distinguish Old Chicago, meaning the pre-Friedman Stigler generation from what came with Freeman and Stigler and later. And the emphasis is that, or Buchanan's emphasis was that old Chicago, which consists mostly of Frank Knight and Henry Simons, was about laissez faire within rules, just like the order liberals, whereas the Friedman Stigler generation, in his view, forgot the within rules part, right? So um, the framework, as we discussed it, um, which is the within rules part, within which we can you can have less affair or dynamics uh, was somehow forgotten in the post-war period. Strangely, uh, old Chicago and uh, Freiburg did not correspond. Um, 
I couldn't I couldn't find anything. But you can sense that both come um, from these German traditions. So Knight is one of the very famous and very early translators of Max Weber. Uh, so somehow they tap this 19th century German political economy and then come up with surprisingly similar ideas, both of the positive analysis of the framework and interdependence and all that, and of the normative issues of power, disempowerment, and all that. So it's really surprising um, how, um, if you look at what Henry Simons was doing in the late 30s, early 40s in Chicago, and what the old liberals were doing, it's not just the same positive analysis, it's not just the same normative consequences, but it's also the same rhetoric, right? So you'll find the crucial term competitive order in both of them. You would find the picture of the stadium, which I tried to uh, to use my own uh, as my own one, you would find it in both of them, right? So strangely, you see how the crazy times which they were living through on both sides of the Atlantic, now of course the European side was a little bit more crazy or much more crazy, but you can see how that time and those shared intellectual origins produced strikingly similar analyses and strikingly similar tools what uh, what has to be done. And all of that crystallizes uh, at the founding meeting of the Montpellier Society, where you see the German, well, not the Germans, but Eucken, who is the only German, the Chicagoans, um, and so many other ones from, from other countries having come to that conclusion, which is in shaky times, in disorderly times, we really need to care about the static frameworks and the old liberalism of the late 19th century in the stable times of the late 19th century, at least in England, had forgotten about the rules. So we have a, I think we have a cycle uh, where in stable times, we care about the laissez-faire part and we love it and we all do. But in less stable or fragile times, we should come back to the within rules part. So we should care about those stabilizing static frameworks, which help us to, um, yeah, basically to tame the dynamics because otherwise the dynamics has the potential, again, interdependence and all that, to bust the whole order. So you have this shared worry, which you see the Kolok Lippmann and at the founding meeting of the Montpellier Society. Then in those times specifically, we should reformulate the rules so that they stabilize and tame the dynamics. And that's what you see on both sides of the Atlantic. And I do find it fascinating, is again, especially because there is not much influence. It's more like, uh, like parallelisms, which you find in Hayek's London with Hayek and Robbins, in Geneva, in Vienna before people leave, um, and in Chicago. And, and by the way, also in France and Italy, right? So well, it's... Uh, well, I, th I think, right, we, we tend to call that surprising because we, we love tracing influences, right? Yeah. We, we're both historians of economic thought and we love to trace influences. But one problem of influences is that, right, it's a very static image, right? Yeah. There's, there's, there's something that influences us and then that makes us do something, which is a very deterministic situation. So I, I've also over time come to believe that right, it's a problem situation to which different people have, have to find an answer. And that problem situation might have been quite 
quite similar. And then their source material might have, in, in some sense, might have overlapped that they used to come up with an answer, right? Yep. But influence, in some sense, doesn't doesn't do justice to the agency. I agree. Um, you appropriate certain ideas, right? But you use them strategically, like the, this influence model. I think, yeah. Oh, I fully agree. And uh, in in the old Chicago paper, which is now uh, out at History of Political Economy, but there is also a, an earlier version at the Stigler Center at Chicago. Uh, I explicitly said I don't care about influences. I don't want to trace them, and I think they're not important. An interesting figure in all that, of course, is Hayek, right? So because you can find that very same, uh, that very same set of problems and very similar set of solutions in Hayek of the late 30s, in Hayek at the road to serfdom, and in, of Hayek at the founding meeting of the MPS, right? So it's, I don't like the word thought collective, but uh, you can really say that it's um. It's that interesting uh, web with different nodes and somehow independently, sometimes because of shared intellectual origins, sometimes because of formative books like Walter Lippmann's Great Society, they really come to... I still stick to surprising. I do find it surprising to find the very same word in English and in German at the very same time with people who haven't yeah. who haven't corresponded, right? Uh, and of course, endorsing something like a German term uh, doesn't make you very popular in 1946. Um, but it is, um, yeah, it is fascinating to see those parallel lines and that parallel struggle how to, how to set up something um, after civilization had just almost been destroyed. So you brought up Hayek and this being a Hayek podcast and all, it might make sense for us to spend a little bit of time on Hayek, but you actually have a quite unique reading of him because uh, right, one of your uh, papers, I think it's not by now more or less five years old, argued that Hayek was an order liberal or at least, I mean, that might be overstating it. You're always careful in your scholarship, but why is Hayek an order liberal? Because in the 30s and 40s, so that same period which we've been discussing over the past half an hour, he thought in that very same way, which is that, yes, knowledge is imperfect. Yes, we never know um, and we'll never be able to set up a new system. However, um, we live in a moment of time where the unfettered dynamics of the Great Depression just destroyed almost everything. And now we need to come back to thinking in institutional frameworks, to think back of the within rules, part of laissez-faire within rules. Um, so, or in other words, if you think of why Hayek lost his students to Keynes, it might be that his business cycle theory uh, didn't have to offer anything in terms of what does a liberal have to hope for once you have left um, the dynamics of the market process to do its work and the work it did was basically to destroy Central European democracies. And then I believe that somewhere in the mid-1930s, actually from 1933 onwards from his inaugural address at LSE, he starts saying, well, oh, in order that dynamics to have good results, in order for that dynamics to, again, ensure efficiency, but also a life in a thriving liberal society, we need to care about the rules. We need to care about the frameworks, only the frameworks 
uh, ensure um, a good society. And you can see that way, so from 1933, I would say until the Constitution of Liberty. Then, of course, you live in a sort of stable world, also in a world where there is not too much to be shaped because things appear quite fixed and quite stable. And in, that, in those stable decades of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, he, he focuses on, first of all, that other layer of rules, which is way more long run. But other than that, he would always emphasize we don't know enough, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you have moments like 19, let's say 1946, 47 in Germany where you would say, well, we don't know enough, but we need to shape the rules. So we need to talk about them. And then you have moments like the 1960s um, um, where you um, where he specifically uh, would again start emphasizing how little we know, yeah. right? So there are moments, well, we, we never know perfectly well, but there are moments like the 30s and 40s, and this is the Hayek I'm most interested in, where you're forced to say what we know from legal history, from economic history, so that you um, set up, um, well, so you stabilize what is left, and you recreate after the war um, that new uh, order, which uh, has to be set up because Western Europe is in ruin. So you cannot say we don't know enough. So the curious question, like a brief one, the curious question to me, being from Eastern Europe, is what he would have said after 1989 yeah. if he had been um, active at the time, right? So would he then come back to that reasoning in the 30s and 40s and say, well, we don't know enough. We, we've never done a transition from communism to to uh, to uh, capitalist society, but we need to mobilize all the knowledge which we have from economic and legal history, and we need to try with this imperfect knowledge to shape the rules of the game as we had to do in the 30s and 40s, right? So, again, in the shaky times, you need to care about the rules, and you have to mobilize your imperfect knowledge, knowing that it's imperfect. Yeah. And in German, there's this beautiful phrase, Stunde Null, um, yeah. which is hour zero, right? To mark the sort of almost blank slate, sense of a blank slate on which they're going to build a new uh, liberal democracy after the Second World War. Around that time, right, you have Hayek writing about planning planning for, for competition, which is uncharacteristic for the greatest critic of, of planning in the 20th yeah. century to be arguing for planning, right? Um, and, and so, so there's there's something something striking about that. He, Hayek though would emphasize continuity, and, and just out of curiosity, now the the order liberals come out of the German historical school. Mm -hmm. Are they also as worried about continuity, or are they closer to a kind of constructivist view in which we can really think about our zero? Because even in in Hayek's famous address to the historians of of the, uh, the, to the historians in England, right? He really emphasizes, well, we want to find a resurgence of liberalism in in Germany, right? We really should look for liberal roots, and we should try to connect to those because it's continuity that's going to do it. Well, I think it, it, it's a tricky question, of course. I mean, uh, and I think the success of the social market economy that it was Stunde Null and continuity in a combination, right? So. You would try to you would try to set it up and to sell it to the citizen as a German program, 
both intellectually and politically. But of course, um, you would uh, try also to explain that it is something fundamentally new, connecting to older, uh, to older roots of German liberalism. What I do find important is that um, so briefly spending a word on the social market economy, they set it up as something um, which is called, so first of all, the Stunde Null was well prepared, right? So those resistance circles about which we briefly spoke uh, had produced a set of um, um, memos and all kinds of preparatory documents for the time after the war. So they, they already had a, unlike the more socialist parts of the committees after the war, they already had a well-devised agenda how that can work, right? So, but like to the broader society, I really find the idea of the social market economy so curious because this was a fundamentally anti-capitalist society. And with coming up with this notion of the social market economy and with lots of communication between economists and the citizen, especially Ludwig Erhard, somebody who sold auto liberalism to the Germans through the notion of the social market economy, they succeeded in two ways. So first of all, society found its peace with capitalism. But second, society also found its peace within itself, right? So the social market economy from the beginning has been called an ironic formula, meaning a formula of harmony and compromise and um, reconciliation, right? So if you imagine this society, which was so polarized materially and ideally in 1945, and of course demoralized and all of that, 10 years after that notion of the social market economy, which Hayek was critical, but I think unrightly so, um, was quite a success. But again, it was a success because it was a new beginning. That new beginning had been prepared already during the war. It connected to German roots, but it was also always, 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 both from Adenauer and from Erhardt, there had always been the emphasis that now we need to get Western, right? So it is German, but the end of the old Central Europe story that we are neither West nor East um, comes on top. So it's, it has German origins, it has German politicians who implement it, but it is about integrating Germany in the new European integration project. It's about transatlantic relations. So it's a, it's a very balanced and very, um, I would say a smartly balanced project between one's own roots um, westernization, new beginnings, which is prepared and all that. So it's, it's really, it was not planned to work out like that, I believe, but it worked out quite neatly. Well, I, I, I think the, the way you now talk about it makes me think, right, that one can, of course, stress continuity and say, okay, you justify things by looking back and emphasizing, right, that we had some of this before. And in my mind was even racing back to all those novels and, 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 and popper that hard back to Greek democracy and right sort of try to revitalize something that, that, that that's that old but it's forward-looking in, in, in the way you explain it right it sort of puts puts a point ahead of us and say that is the direction we're going and that direction is actually worthy of our pursuit and that says less about the past but actually says about um, where we're heading in the future yeah well 
I, I agree. Uh, it was more about the future, uh, but it tried to emphasize the German rule of law tradition, mm. uh, of course, uh, the roots of German liberalism. Um, otherwise, it would have been too alien, right? So if it's only forward-looking without reconnecting to the good parts of German history, despite the terrible 12 years, I think it might have been experienced by the by the public as something being um, imposed by the by the allies, right? So it was 90% forward-looking, but I think the 10% connectivity to one's own history uh, were equally were equally important. Uh, not to perceive it as um, something which which just came uh, from from the outside. And it, and again, it was forward-looking nationally. It was forward-looking when it comes to Europe. And it was forward-looking when it comes to Germany and the West, which is fundamentally also connected to the role of the U.S. and that connectivity of West Germany to the U.S. as a firm, new transatlantic partnership, which had never actually existed in that way. So you brought up Ludwig Erhard a a couple of times. His name, in my mind, um, is associated with the Wirtschaftswunder, the economic miracle of the 1950s of Germany. Um, brought about by the release of, of, of price controls and um, but also the building of a welfare state and you're now uh, becoming academic director director of uh, of the Ludwig Erhard Foundation. So can you tell us a little bit more about this character? Was he an intellectual? Was he just a politician? And was what he did actually order liberal or is this actually a somewhat anachronistic reading of the whole thing where we're like, well, we have a bunch of economists and we also have sensible economic policies, they must have had some, right here, we're back back to influence on each other. Mm. Well, uh, Erhard was a really curious figure. So to begin with, he studied business administration in one of the Handelshochschulen, of which you and I have uh, thought quite a bit. And since I also, as a, as a youthful sin, studied business administration, I've always had sympathy for that. So he, from the very beginning, actually, he was a practical man. He also had serious interests in in economics and sociology. So um, uh, Franz Oppenheimer was his teacher, who was, of course was one of the early, very early people who had uh, a position in sociology. Um, and then in the 30s and 40s, he was working for uh, some associations. And then in his own history, he would uh, read Tröpke during World War II, even though the books were banned and would subscribe to that emerging notion of um, of liberalism. Now, he was picked by the Allies as somebody whom they saw as not contaminated to be an administrator, to begin with in Bavaria and then in Frankfurt. Um, I've I've never seen him as the father of the Wirtschaftswunder because people today, uh, economic historians, um, quite agree that this was not a miracle as would also the liberal economists back then would say. There is a miracle, however, and I briefly mentioned it before, I would like to briefly now expand, which is, I call it the reconciliation miracle. So if you think of that society, which hates itself, where everybody hates everybody else within society, you have a society which is materially as polarized as it can be, right? So there is somebody who still has a house in West Germany. There is somebody who doesn't have a house, but still have a piece of land because his house got bombed out. And then there is somebody next door who just came on a horse from the eastern provinces, having literally nothing. Um, this is 
as polarized, as unequal um, materially as it can be, right? Um, and that society found peace with itself uh, within 10 years. So 10 years later, so in the late 50s, everybody would subscribe to this wonderful social market economy, which, well, was a very capitalistic system. Um, the welfare state, we can uh, debate in a, in a minute. Uh, Erhardt actually was not a great fan of that. I mean, Germany already had the provisions of the 19th century. And um, of course, you had to take pragmatic measures for veterans and for the widows and all of that. He was very much apprehensive that um, other politicians pushed for the expansion of the welfare state, like the dynamic pension system of the late 50s. There is this interesting moment in 1948 where there would be the new currency because the old currency was completely deficient. And then, but this is oral history, which has been largely debated. Um, he, on his own, whether that's true or not, we don't know, would also liberalize a large set of prices. So there is this moment when, in the understanding of the public, it is a German who, not really coordinating with the Allies, is doing a reform which indeed feels like a miracle because all of a sudden you have everything in the shops, even though everything is extremely expensive. And even though with that currency reform, you get a very egalitarian expropriation because everybody got the same amount of the new currency. So it's really a Stunde Null in the sense that people, in terms of financial assets, not the houses, even though there were also some uh, compensation schemes for the houses, they really get from scratch um, and from, an, uh, from a very, very equal um, level. So he was a very gifted political entrepreneur who, by taking this notion of the social market economy, which was not his, but he appropriated it for his, um, for his program. And by talking for 20 years to the regular citizen and trying to explain what sound economic policy, in his view, was about, transformed the country. So antitrust law, the Bundesbank of the 1950s, all of those were institutions with which he hoped that society will come to like capitalism. And by that, find a new identity, forward-looking, uh, and by that, legitimize the very young and fragile republic, unlike Weimar. So Weimar died because of terrible economics. Weimar is the interwar period. Yes, the interwar the interwar republic, the Weimar Republic, died because of bad economics. And the Bonn Republic, post-World War II, actually became what it became. Um, I consider it one of the best republics in human history because of good economics. And I think Hayek didn't get that part, that you needed the term social market economy in order to make that difference. Um, and you needed something which appeals to, to the citizen uh, and make those pragmatic compromises which were necessary. So that, as I recently read in a book, to make up the gigantic failure of economists of the 20s and 30s in Germany, to, to compensate for that in the post-war period. But it wouldn't have worked without the rhetoric. If you had called it, I don't know, German capitalism or something like that, it would have failed dramatically, even though you might have done the same things. Yeah. So it was a very smart combination of um, common sense economics. There was nothing rocket science about liberalizing prices and setting up a new currency, setting up new institutions like antitrust, which was very important in a highly cartelized economy, 
opening up to Europe and shaping the European project from the very beginning, but above all, talking to the citizen and explaining what that common sense economics is about and why that's good for the citizen and for society. We're coming to the end, but I, I want to do one thing because you, you gained some recent fame by talking about narratives and even uh, myths in, in the press and talking about order liberalism, right, which will not appeal to any um, uh, radical libertarian. It might not even have the appeal of a sort of Austrian economics in the sense of having a body of great thinkers who really set up a completely coherent uh, right alternative to, to mainstream economics. I don't think from, from talking to you there's any of that, but there is, it is liberal in the sense that it created a liberal narrative um, around uh, a set of policies that most liberals could get behind, although they might find them somewhat watered down. And so, right, they talk about the moral and social foundations, but in some sense, they also have the practical wisdom to turn that into, into a narrative, right? And then even Eucken with his principles of, of economic policy, it's not just principles of economic policy, it's also the justification of economic policy. I don't know whether this makes any sense to, to, to position them, but you, you give us the last words on, on order liberalism for now. So I agree with you that unlike the Austrian tradition, it's basically one generation, right? So the next generations, unfortunately, were not too creative. I hope my generation will be more creative, but we'll see about that. Um, I, do, I, I would like to emphasize that, and I think that's precisely the strength this narrative, as you called it, and I think that's that's appropriate, is the second most effective narrative when it comes to practical economic policy post-World War II after Keynesianism. There has been no uh, other set of ideas which has been so formative because it's not just about Germany, it's about shaping um, many, many traits of the European project. Um, it has been a very powerful program also when the wall fell in Eastern Europe. So West Germany was, to a certain extent, might even to, to, until today, has been this attractive uh, model. With all the compromises and with all those, the ironic formula, so finding peace also always requires compromises. So you have your own principles, but then in the different contexts of different times, you have to decide which principles have to be prioritized in which principles don't have a space right now. So it is, I think it's a, the, the huge success politically uh, has been that yes, you have principles, but then you also think pragmatically in terms of contexts, because if you stick to the principles like Hayek did in the Great Depression to the principles of his um, business cycle theory, it can turn out that those principles are out of context and then the theory is perfect, the principles are perfect, but then the theory, if it's followed by politicians, can, can destroy the economy and by that society. So the flexibility of having principles, but always to, as you say, to, to combine them with practical wisdom and sensitivity about the context and the, the dangers out there, the fragility of society, which can or cannot take the principles, uh, has been, 
I think part of that wisdom, and I think um, it is a it is a research program which is needed today. We need it in disorderly times, and that's why I think the notion of order, both positive and normative, um, has had this comeback. And I hope our generation will add something to that. And I think our times, in a certain sense, require that. Okay. Great. Thanks so much, Stefan. It was wonderful having you, and uh, we hope to see much more of you for Order Liberalism for the 21st Century. Likewise. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.